Open with me to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. We're continuing our summer series through selected psalms. We've come to 34. It comes towards the end of book one of the psalms, which as a group can be thought of as being ultimately about the sufferings of the anointed one, King David, but then also his greater son, our savior, King Jesus. But also what's unique and stands out about Psalm 34 is that it's a Hebrew acrostic. What that means is that each section begins with successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And it isn't amazing that the poetry, the beauty of it, is magnified through the self-limiting form of the artist, right? Let me, let me tell you what I mean. When we come to a sonnet and we see the, the um, meter and the signature, everything that, that, that makes a sonnet what it is, iambic pentameter, the rhyme scheme. The, the artists had to limit themselves and yet come up with something so poignant and so beautiful. When we look at art and we say, you made that with just graphite and canvas or just oil and canvas, we come away with a sense of beauty and wonder when we see an artist do so much with so little. And isn't it true that art moves us when the medium becomes so much more than the sum of its parts? One scholar speaking about Hebrew poetry and really all poetry across time and culture, is that it, is meant, it does inform us. But poetry and art is meant to move us. It moves us emotionally, right, what we feel, but it also moves us volitionally. It moves us in what we do. And so my hope today is that, that we would see a movement in our souls as we consider the poetry of Scripture as the Holy Spirit moves through God's Word. So would you pray with me, and then we're going to read together. Heavenly Father, I do pray for faith today that you would weaken, you would strengthen our weak faith, that you would work it into our hearts. I pray for myself especially, but also for those here that we would receive and rest in Jesus alone. Thank you for the free offer of the gospel, your grace to us even today. And it's in your precious name that I pray, amen. Psalm 34. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all of my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, 
and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is God's word. In February, NASA put out some disappointing news. Exploration rover B bit the dust. Literally, it was caught in a dust storm on Mars and it quit working, quit transmitting any data back to Earth. It was there looking for life, taking samples and sending it back. And since about 2003, as it's been wandering the face of Mars, it didn't find anything. Now, what were biologists looking for uh, on the surface of Mars? They were looking for signs of past or present life. And you have to have criteria to know what you're looking for if you're looking for life on Mars. By the way, they didn't find anything. Um, you're looking for an environment that can result in metabolism, respiration, reproduction, really growth and, and move, ultimately movement. It goes without saying that for something to be alive, it has to move. It has to breathe. What we see in Psalm 34 is evidence of a living faith. This is a living, breathing, active, growing faith that David models as he points forward to Jesus for us. It's his thanksgiving, his testimony of deliverance. And within the psalm, we see movement. It moves us towards living faith, and we also see three movements within it. We see that living faith in the living God moves us from distress into thanksgiving, from the fear of man to the fear of God, and from self-righteousness to Christ-righteousness. I'll say that again. Living faith in the living God moves us from distress into thanksgiving, from the fear of man to the fear of God, and from self-righteousness to Christ's righteousness. And my hope is that as we meditate on this together today, we would be moved as we witness the fact that the living God became a dying man, that you and I might have a living faith. The living God became a dying man so that you and I would have a living faith. First, living faith moves from distress to thanksgiving. We see this in verses 1 through 6, but we're actually going to start at the superscription of the psalm. The superscription typically tells us who writes the psalm or musically something we need to know about it. But here we receive history. Look with me. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. This refers back to a circumstance in his life. And the circumstance of David's life produces the soil of this psalm. This is 1 Samuel chapter 21. David is on the run. It's been about two years since Goliath. And he comes to Gath seeking refuge. But as he approaches Gath, the people of Gath know who he is. His reputation goes before him. They know he's a, a mighty warrior. Kills his thousands or ten thousand. So they start to talk. And they're like, wait a second, this guy is a threat. They see him as a threat. And David picks up on it. And he's like, I'm going to lose my life. Like, they're going, to, they're going to turn towards me. I can't, I don't have refuge here. And with no other way out, he feigns insanity. He starts foaming at the mouth, scratching at the gate. And the king of Gath comes out and says, whoa, it's a little too extra for my city. I'm not, I'm not interested in that being in here. And so he sends him away. And David escapes. Feigns insanity. He escapes. And this is his testimony of God's deliverance. But pause for a second. Of all the responses he could have had to what happened, he responds with thanks and credit to God. If you're anything like me, if that would have happened to me, I would have come out and immediately found some of my friends and said, hey, guess what, guess what I did to get out? I pretended like they were bees. I just started screaming. I said, save yourself, don't be a hero. That's what I would have done. 
But no, he doesn't say, look at how clever I was to figure out how to escape. Another valid response would have been, God, I'm your anointed one, the future king of Israel, and here I am almost losing my life again. How could you? How could you have let me go through something like this again? Two responses that would have made sense in the moment, and David chooses neither. He turns in thanks, and he gives God the credit and the glory for sparing him. In distress, he blesses the Lord. Look, verse 1, at all times he blesses the Lord. Verse 2, for you are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. Oh, I'm reading the wrong psalm, you guys. I turned the page. I was like, that doesn't make any sense. That's not what my sermon's about at all. He turns, and in his most humble moment, he is glad. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Verse 2. David shows us that this is not evidence of self-confidence. Hey, look how I figured out how to escape. He actually reveals his fear. He reveals his fear. In 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 12, And David took these words to heart and was much afraid. Verse 4 in Psalm 34, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. He reveals that he was afraid, in distress, and he turns in thanks to God. Now this flies in the face of the way I've responded to distress and anxiety my entire life. If you're anything like me, you respond one of two ways to distressing situations or something that might make you want to feel anxious. False confidence or control, right? Now, a little bit more backstory. I was a very, very shy, anxious kid. I didn't talk very well. Yeah, I know, it's hard to believe. I really wasn't. I didn't talk very much. I was really shy. I was super self-conscious. And I constantly looked around at the other people around me and said, what do they have that I don't have? And about my junior, senior year in high school, I looked around and was like, what, what do they have? And all these, these other folks were so confident, right? And I thought, okay, I feel anxious, but they're confident, so I'll just be confident. And so I put on this brave face, and I projected a whole lot of confidence to the world. And you can imagine it worked for a little while, right? Until it all came crashing down. Because <laughs> the more pressure you put on that, pushing down, pushing down, it's just going to come out sideways. It didn't end well. It's just another idol for me. False confidence. Maybe you don't struggle with kind of projecting this confidence out to the world when you're tempted to be anxious or when you're in distress. Maybe you turn towards control. Maybe, hey, I'm going to work harder. I'm going to do better to stave off the fear. I'm not even going to let the fear get to me because I'm going to be two steps ahead of it. What ends up happening is you end up manipulating the things and people in your life, and it doesn't go very well either. I've tried that one too. It doesn't work. Don't try it. Instead, David makes himself low. The anointed one of, of Israel is humiliated, pretending to be insane. Yet in his most shameful moment, can you, I mean, he was, he was the future king, and this is another king, and he has to act like he's lost his mind in front of him. In his most shameful, embarrassing moment, look at verses 5 and 6. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him. He owns his fear. And he says, I don't have to be ashamed for the Lord, my God. He turns in thankfulness. 
This movement of living faith from distress into thanksgiving reminds us a lot of what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Friends, the opposite of anxiety and distress is neither confidence nor control. It's thanksgiving. The opposite of anxiety is thanksgiving. And David models it for us and Paul commends it to us. And don't hear this the wrong way. This is not just pray it away. This is a reminder that our deliverance is 100% the Lord's. Our salvation belongs to the Lord. Scripture tells us that with thanks, let God know what you need. And there is no promise that his provision will be according to our standards or our expectations. But what is the promise? That the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so then the spiritual discipline of giving thanks is simply this. Turning to the Lord and saying, Lord, I am afraid. I cannot control this situation. All I can do is recount to you what I do know to be certain. It's not a denial of the very real pain, the very real difficulty that's going on. It actually looks that pain and that distress full in the face and grounds us in what is true and good and beautiful, reminding ourselves over and over again of what God has done in the past and what we know he will do in the future. Distress to thanksgiving is the movement, the trajectory, the direction of faith. It's the movement of faith that we see in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. Do you remember when they're standing before Nebuchadnezzar? He's threatening to throw them into the fiery furnace. And they look to him and say, King, we don't have to answer you on this. Lord our God is able to deliver us. He's strong enough. He will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we will not worship your false god. One writer talks about this as there's a difference between living in the what if. What if bad things happen? What's going to happen to me? Because this bad thing already has happened. Difference between living in the what if and moving into the even if. Even if I will still trust in you. Even if I lose my life. I'm thankful that my God is able. My God is strong. My God is a deliverer. Living faith in the living God moves from distress into thanksgiving. Next, living faith moves from the fear of man to the fear of God. We see this in verses 5 through 14. And the tone of the psalm shifts. So in the beginning of the psalm, it's a typical song of thanksgiving where he's giving testimony what God has done. But look at uh, verse 11 with me. Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? And goes on and say, what does that look like? The psalm, in a way, shifts from being a song of thanksgiving to more like wisdom literature, like we would hear in Proverbs or Job or Ecclesiastes, right? And wisdom literature in Scripture and in the ancient Near East always has kind of this tone of a fatherly exhortation or a king showing his son how to be a good king. And the word wisdom actually has to do with craftsmanship. It's living skillfully in light of the Lord, right? It answers the question, how do I walk with integrity before God and man? That's what wisdom literature and scripture does for us. 
How do I walk with integrity before God and man? And this psalm shifts into that gear. And there's a recurring theme in all of wisdom literature, but in this psalm of the fear of the Lord. Fear the Lord, you as saints. Those who fear him have no lack. Listen to me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What is this? We hear in Proverbs 9 and in Job 28 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, what we see in Psalm 34 is that it's a promise of God's protective presence, right? Fear, is, uh, fear of the Lord, you as saints, those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. This is not a promise of, of affluence, but it is a promise of God's presence and his protective care. Not affluence, but care. But here's the thing. There's something that rubs us the wrong way when we read this. Fear of the Lord? Wait a second. In Jesus, is there, any, is there any reason for me to have a fear of God, afraid of God? This kind of sounds like moralism. Is this moralism that, that uh, if you want a good life, obey the Lord and turn away from evil? I want to I remind you guys, and, and let's dwell here, that, that this is not what it's saying. But when you study the fear of the Lord through Scripture, what you come away with is that it's a fear that's married to love and hope. It is not terror, and it's not just awe, but it's a fear that's relational. It's a fear that comes from connection. In the ancient Near East, in Israel, and in other cultures, fear and love were both words that were used to describe the covenant relationship between a king and a servant, right? It's this promise of, I'm yours and you're mine. The king promises protection, the servant uh, promises loyalty, and it's a, it's a bond in blood, right? It's a life and death promise. I will be yours, you will be mine. And so when we hear fear of the Lord, you should, you should hear covenant language of a king and a servant. It's a loyalty and it's an allegiance to him, allegiance to the king's word and to himself. It implies a relationship with the king that shapes our values, our convictions, and our behavior. Quick aside, any allegiance that we hold to an institution, a king or a country, a country will shape our values, behavior, and convictions. Do you hear me? And if you look at the scope of Israel's history, that is most often away from the kingdom of God. A primary allegiance to any other institution, king or country, will inevitably lead us away from the kingdom of God. We were meant for this covenant relationship, a fear of the Lord. Fear of God in verses 11 through 14, looks like repentance that's rooted in love, trust, and hope. Let me read it again. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What is man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. This is not the empty promise of legalism. The empty promise of legalism is do good and God will love you. Instead, this is walk God's way with God. Walk with God, God's way. Compare it to what we hear in Deuteronomy chapter 10. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and that it's the posture that we take when we come to God. 
It's the attitude of someone who moves towards God as God has already moved towards them. Over the July 4th weekend, we had the opportunity to spend some time with some friends. And late one night, we're, we're staying up and talking, and uh, we get to start sharing stories about our grandparents. And my friend sh- uh, told a story about his grandfather and all, when all the cousins would gather at his house, and they'd call it going to camp. I guess it was grandfather camp. And the grandfather had these framed rules posted, I believe, inside and outside. Is that right? Were they outside as well? They're posted around the house, and I just want to read them to you, and I want you to listen for the heart of this grandfather. This, there's a lot of caps. Like there's, it's all caps. <laughs> this is like a covenant, like one God made with his child Abraham. Obey these rules, and good things will happen, and you will have lots of fun. <laughs> Disobey them, and bad things will happen, and you won't have much fun. Rule number one, knuckleheads must not open the gate or go into the pool area unless an adult goes with them. The gate stays closed. Rule number two, knuckleheads must not go into the pool unless an adult is present and says go. Number three, knuckleheads that swim good must look out for and take care of kids that don't swim good yet. (laughs) Rule four, if any adult tells knuckleheads to stop doing what they're doing or to get out of the pool, knuckleheads will obey immediately. There will be no warning or second chance to pool rules. Knuckleheads must obey them or not swim. And it goes on with other rules about whining and simple, very fair, very kind expectations for what discipline will look like. And it's posted all the way for the kids. Now, do you hear the angry, controlling, capricious, arbitrary rules of a tyrant when you hear that? No. What are the first four rules about? the pool. What I hear when I read that is a grandfather who loves his children enough to save their lives. He knows that that pool will hurt them and will kill them. And so he sets up these appropriate boundaries. And within these boundaries, these kids have freedom to love and play and enjoy him and enjoy one another, right? But here's the thing. If kids don't believe that the pool will hurt them, the rules and the discipline will sound harsh, won't they? Redeemer, the same is true for us. Children feel safe when they know that a caretaker is reliable, consistent, and present. And there is a natural fear that comes from knowing that a loving, strong person is in charge and wants what's best for you. Isn't it right? Children thrive in that environment. But Redeemer, if we don't believe that sin kills us, obedience and discipline from God will seem harsh. If we don't believe that sin kills us, we will will think that discipline and obedience are harsh and unfair. Not an angry, controlling tyrant, but a loving father meant to save us. Your father sees dangers that we cannot see and loves you enough to guard your life. And so the fear of God is not a shackle to the slavery to the law. It is a strong hand that both gently leads us and guides us and pulls us back from the edge. Does that make sense? A strong hand that leads us and guides us and also will pull us back from the edge. The psalmist tells us that fearing God is turning away from evil and seeking good. 
turning away from lies and embracing the truth, turning away from strife and pursuing peace, turning away from the fear of man with its incessant, insatiable beast of approval and applause and the rules of mankind. That's the fear of man. Looking to others to validate us, looking for others to establish what is true and right, turning away from the fear of man and turning towards the fear of God. As we heard in 1999, all over the world hearts pound with the rhythm, fear not of men because men must die. The world is overrun with the wealthy and the wicked, but God is sufficient in disposing of affairs. Gunmen and stockholders try to merit my fear, but God is sufficient over plans they prepared. Most deaf in the flesh, where are you at right here? Turn away from the fear of man and turn to the fear of God. Living faith moves us there. Next, living faith in the living God moves from self-righteousness to Christ's righteousness. We see this in verses 15 through 22. And starting in verse 15, we actually see another shift. Look at it with me. The psalmist had been talking about the God-fearers or those who fear the Lord. And look with me at 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears towards their cry. He shifts the discussion and starts talking generally about those who are righteous. But what, what does it mean to be righteous? Righteousness in Scripture would be standing before God's standard as innocent. It also involves living out of that a righteous, just life and seeking justice for others. So if that's righteousness, then what's self-righteousness? Standing before our own standard as innocent. Standing before our own standard innocent, which puts us in a posture to look down on others who don't live up to our standard. Does that make sense? Christ's righteousness is set by his standard. In this way, wickedness, which this passage talks about, God's eyes are towards the wicked, he turns away, towards the righteous, he turns away from the wicked. Wickedness and righteousness are then just two sides of the same coin. Wickedness establishes its own righteousness outside of God with no regard to God. Self-righteousness fakes the righteousness of God or seeks to merit God's favor through it. But it's the same thing. It's standing before our own standard as innocent but look at God's perspective his eyes are toward the righteous he turns towards them friends the good news for us is not us turning from good away from evil and towards good the good news is not turning away from evil and turning towards good the good news is that God turns his face towards us God turns his face towards us now be honest when I said self-righteous you may have thought of someone in your head. Someone that you consider to be self-righteous. Maybe it's yourself. I doubt it, though, because I have a hard time being that honest with myself. But I want, I want, somebody once did this exercise with me. I want you to think about that person that you consider to be self-righteous. And now I want you to think about the amount of goodness or the amount of consistency in your life that separates you from that person and the lack of goodness or lack of consistency that you see in their life so that you could label them a hypocrite and yourselves not. And when we stack ourselves up against someone like that, we really prove ourselves to be Pharisees. Because the danger in this culture is to label ourselves as the good and gracious ones and the other people as hypocrites. And in doing so, we prove ourselves to be Pharisees all along. But look what kind of posture God takes Look at the posture God takes. Verse 18. Who does God draw near to? 
The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Once again, David speaks from experience, right? When things were bad, when he was ashamed, when he was broken and crushed, God was near. One commentator puts it this way, The fear of the Lord may mend broken hearts, but it does not prevent hearts from being broken. Let me read that again. The fear of the Lord may mend broken hearts, but it does not prevent hearts from being broken. It was Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount who said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, the persecuted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So if we are going to share in God's heart, we share in his posture of humility. We share in his hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we share with him in drawing near to those who are brokenhearted. Because if we're, not, we're honest with ourselves, that's us. Draw near to the brokenhearted. Now, David does something really interesting in verse 19. In 15 through 18, he speaks generally of the righteous. And you don't see this in English, but the righteous, that's actually a plural word. So that's talking about God's righteous people. But look with me at verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Pause. It doesn't show it in your Bible, but that word is all of a sudden singular. And keep reading. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. This is God's righteous one. Verse 20. He keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken. Are you picking up on where we're going with this? Self-righteousness and wickedness hope to enjoy the good life without the cost of the good life. You and I assume God's favor rather than pursue it, but there is a personal and a cosmic cost to righteousness, and we see it in John chapter 19. Since it was the day of the preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that the legs might be broken so that they might be taken away. When someone was crucified, if they didn't die quick enough, they'd break their legs so that they would suffocate on the cross because they had to use their legs to push up to breathe. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. None of his bones will be broken. Psalm 34. Friends, if you and I are going to turn away from evil and live in the fear of the Lord and walk righteously, our only hope is that the Lamb of God, without spot, blemish, or broken bone, has come to take away the sins of the world. His legs did not have to be broken because he gave up his life willingly so that he could say, it is finished. Not it is possible, it is finished. Righteousness is accomplished by Jesus, the anointed one. Friends, the living God became a dying man so that you and I could enjoy a living faith as a free gift. The living God became a dying man so that we would have a living faith. And the question for you and me right now is this, am I righteous? Am I righteous? Not am I a decently good person, 
Not do I believe the right things. Not do I execute public justice. Not am I compassionate and loving. All those things are pieces and parts of what righteousness looks like in your life. But I'm asking you to ask yourself, am I righteous? When the Father looks at you, does he see you as righteous? Remember, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It had nothing to do with what he had done or not done. Faith without works is dead, but you can have a living faith because you have a living Savior, friends. You have a living Savior. You can have a living faith. Look at verse 22. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. The Father redeemed the life of his suffering servant by not just having him die on a cross, but rising again, crowning him king the anointed one. He redeemed him. If we take refuge in him, if we hide in him, if our righteousness is so wrapped up in his righteousness, we will never be condemned. There's a temptation here in the world and in your own heart and in my own heart to lower or change the standards of God, to redefine righteousness so as to fit our desires it's like coming up to the high jump in the Olympics and moving the bar down so that I can get over it. But what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is he takes everything in the Old Covenant and he ramps it up a few notches and says, this is righteousness. And he clears it on our behalf. Living faith has no problem with high standards because Jesus met those high standards in his life, his death, and his resurrection. So, Redeemer, move in faith as the Spirit moves in you. This thankfulness, this fear of the Lord, and taking refuge in Christ's righteousness are evidence of a living faith and a living God. Not that you've arrived, not a perfect arrival, but continually moving that way by faith, by the grace of God. Do you hear me? Move towards your Savior as he has moved towards you. And your faith moves you here to a table. Look with me at verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. If thanksgiving is our response to grace, and the fear of God is our living out of grace, tasting and seeing is experiencing that grace. Tasting and seeing is an invitation to experience the grace of God. History shows that Psalm 34 was what was sung when the early church would take communion together. And here we are 2,000 years later, gathering around this table. What we are about to see is a picture of God's covenant promise. I will be yours, you will be mine. I will be with you. It's here to strengthen our weak faith it's an outward sign of an inward reality of what Christ has done in your heart. Isn't it so kind of God? When we read his words, the Holy Spirit speaks through it, but he gives us sense experiences, right? He gives us something we can touch, something we can taste, something we can see. He gives that to us as a means of grace. This is not an altar that's high and lifted up that only a priest has access to. Do you hear me? It's not an altar that only a priest can come to. It's a table. It's a family table. 
that we gather around, that we commune together at the table, to commune with Jesus, to be nourished by him. There can be all kinds of ways that we can configure how we connect with Jesus, but Jesus actually says, hey, I'll meet you here. I'll meet you at the table. I'll be there with you spiritually while you commune at the table. And we know while we dine that Jesus' cup was not sweet, was it? Jesus drank the cup of wrath. Justice poured out against sin. If God had not dealt with our sin justly, he would not be a good judge, he would not be a good God, but he did. And Jesus drank that nasty cup down to the dregs so that he could hand us the sweet cup of celebration around the family table. Friends, this bread and this wine is not effective in the things themselves. It's also not effective because of me or the men who will administer it. This is a means of grace for you to grow your faith, to strengthen your faith only by the blessing of Christ and the working of the Spirit in those who would receive it with a living faith. A living faith. So, Redeemer, the living God became a dying man that you and I might have a living faith. Let's turn in faith, ask him to move us, and taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess our weak faith. We confess our distress. We confess our fear of man. We confess our self-righteousness and our wickedness, and we come to you. Thank you for each person here. I do not know what each person in this room is struggling with or dealing with, but I do pray that you would meet them there. Thank you for your word and the blessing that it is to me. And it's in your precious name I pray. Amen.